This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week with an issue important to drivers. When doctors use their discretion to report people whose driver's licenses should be suspended. According to an investigation by the Toronto Star, the system is open to abuse, with some doctors filing thousands of these declarations, while most might make this recommendation once a year. Our Zoomer squad weighed in when they joined Libby on Monday. Peter Mugrich is senior editor at Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder is chief operating and chief policy officer at CARP. And David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. This is kind of a, you, you don't win either way because we've seen news reports of uh, traffic problems with older drivers and second-guessing why didn't somebody come forward when they noticed that mom was not able to keep the car in the right lane or there's an eye problem or eye-hand problem or there's dementia. Somebody should have said something. And now here we've got people proactively saying something. (laughs) And I'm astonished that there were 35,000 of these since uh, 2011. So it's a huge number of these reports that are being filed. So I think when you get that many reports, it's easy to find lots of cases where they shouldn't have reported it. And I'm not sure you're ever going to find an ideal medium, Hmm. happy medium. Bill, what's your take? Well, this this is uh, an ongoing issue for CARP that we've been uh, talking about and trying to deal with for, for years. The application is inconsistent. Uh, In Ontario, you have some uh, uh, places where it's mandatory for the medical profession to report, others where it's uh, discretionary. One of the the real problems we've found is that there's no common standards across the country. The Canadian Medical Association has advice for uh, for doctors, but no clear guidelines as there are in other uh, uh, diseases, and it puts the it puts the doctor in a, in a very difficult position. I've had doctors say to me, you know, if I take somebody's driver's license away, they're going to be so angry with me that they're not going to come back to me so I can treat their other illnesses. So it really puts uh, the physician on the horns of a, of a dilemma. Uh, most of the focus is on uh, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, other forms of uh, uh, dementia, but uh, not not always. And uh, and the majority of them uh, always seem to be people over sixty. And the article uh, today uh, uh, said that. So it it's it's not a clear issue at all, and uh, uh, has been concerning people for years. Peter. Yeah, um, I, I can speak from personal experience because I, in my twenties, I had a experience with um, epilepsy and had my license taken away because of it, and that was fine because um, you know, in, in you know, when it was out of when it, w- it wasn't under control, I shouldn't have been on the road driving. But what happened was the um, 
the emergency room doctor filed the MCR, didn't tell me, um, and um, the the problem was, okay, that's fine, you know, um, file an MCR, but but to get my license back, I had to, you know, gather evidence that I, I was fine to drive, but the doctor um, who filed the report was an emergency room doctor who couldn't be traced, you know, it was just his initials on the form. And so it was an awful time, me getting my license back, trying to sort of build the case that I didn't need it, didn't need my license suspended anymore. But the original doctor was no longer there to be seen. And I had to get another doctor to say that the original doctor's um, you know, report was no longer valid. because of So, so it was a very bureaucratic, time-consuming, annoying, irritating process. And I think that's what people are worried about, especially in the Star Report, where the woman says the doctor who um, signed her medical uh, condition report didn't even see her or may have seen her for just minutes and then went and signed it. So so it, certainly the, it's it's not abuse, but it's it's sort of, is this process right? Was that doctor being overzealous? You know, Maybe was, it is abuse. Yeah, were the, were <laughs> the bureaucrats overzealous? Like what? Like the the onus should be, you know, tell it like, like this should be a long sort of careful process. process. It shouldn't just be a snap decision in the emergency room. Peter Mugrich, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and a vice president here at Zoomer Media. This is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. I'm Jane Brown. As of this past Monday, people who are unvaccinated against COVID are allowed on planes and trains in Canada. Mask mandates have ended in most settings, although not in airports and on flights, as well as long-term care and retirement homes. Across the GTA, hospital administrators also require staff and visitors to mask up, even though this is not required under provincial guidance. And what about if you are exposed to COVID or get COVID yourself? What are the current protocols? Libby discussed all of these topics with Dr. Fahad Razak, the new scientific director of the COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. As you know, we have uh, wastewater monitoring that's been in place across the province uh, for some time now, which is a really important signal for us about whether cases are going up and down. And right now, they're clearly going up. So we hit a low point uh, a few weeks ago, and they've clearly been steadily rising overall in the province and in every single region of the province. And so what you said is right. I think all of us individually know lots of people who have been infected recently. Um, you know, that includes people like, for example, even our prime minister in the last couple of weeks. And the number of infections are clearly going up. So I think the question is, what do you do to safely continue with all the things that are important to us while you know that rates are going up again? Well, and, you know, I've got to say that when it comes to travel, because I know, I mean, the totally anecdotal and unscientific. So let's say I know 10 people who have traveled recently, and these are people with third and often fourth shots on board. And I would say seven or eight of them came back with COVID. Yeah, many, uh, many people I know have a similar story. In fact, um, I even know of examples, for example, of clinicians from hospitals who were at a medical conference um, and came back and a large number of them are positive. And so, especially if you're going into an international setting, 
there are exposures that are happening in the process of traveling and the fact that many countries, especially the U.S., have much laxer regulation than we do. And so you potentially are going into a high-risk environment. Okay, so what is considered an exposure now? So an exposure remains being in close proximity of someone who has known uh, uh, has has known active disease or has active symptoms of disease. Um, but right now, based on our protocols in Ontario, you don't have to go into any kind of isolation period unless you yourself are positive. And if you're positive, the, the recommendation is still for five days from the time that your symptoms started and that your symptoms are clearly improving at the end of that five-day cycle. So for the uh, final 24 to 48 hours that your symptoms are improving. That's the guidance. And I would still say that holds for most people. Now, if you're unvaccinated, the period of time that we're suggesting is still longer. It's more in the 10-day cycle. If you think you've been exposed, do you test or do you only test if you have symptoms? If you've been exposed and you're going into a situation where your infectivity could put others at risk, then I would still suggest testing. So, so for example, Let's say you're exposed at work, and that weekend you'll be visiting with family, which includes someone who's elderly or includes children who are younger than age five and unvaccinated. It would be very reasonable to do a test before meeting up with them, and that would be the rapid test. If you're getting together in a setting with a lot of people, many are still saying, please do a rapid test on the day of, just to reduce the chance that someone is coming in is infectious. So there's not hard and fast rules around this, but I think it's pretty reasonable to do if you want to keep those around you safe. And remember, these tests are still freely provided in Ontario. Now, you mentioned the tests being available and free. My understanding is that's ending July 1st. Am I right? So they are talking about ending the availability. There's many of those tests still floating around. So it would be reasonable, I think, again, to have some excess ones at home that you can use throughout the summer, especially if cases are starting to rise. And of course, you know, the hope is, is that the government can look at signals like the wastewater or other things and make a decision about whether they want to extend the period that these tests are available. I, I have not seen an announcement yet, but they have shown in the past that if the signals change, they will reconsider the timeline. And I agree with you that these tests are uh, very expensive if you have to pay for them yourself. And so you're going to see people stop using them if it's an out-of-pocket expense. Dr. Fahad Razak, the new scientific director of Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, we speak with another of the federal conservative leadership candidates, Patrick Brown. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This week, we continued our series of interviews with the candidates for the leadership of the Federal Conservative Party. Federal Conservative leadership races have traditionally been nasty, and this one is no exception. On Monday, Libby welcomed Patrick Brown, who we've talked with many times as mayor of Brampton and before that as Ontario's PC leader. Well, first of all, let me say I am very encouraged by the record-setting membership hall that we had. When Aaron O'Toole was successfully elected 
leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. He had signed up 20,000 new members. When Andrew Scheer won that leadership, he signed up 9,000. So 150,000 is an astonishing um, number to sign up, and it shows how I can broaden the reach of the party. In terms of our co-chair's decision to run for the Alberta Conservative leadership, um, let me say I'm happy for her. I, I think it speaks well of my supporters that they're being courted for um, higher positions. And in Michelle's case, she remains a supporter. Michelle Rempel, she remains a supporter of of my of my candidacy for the federal conservative leadership. And uh, I wish her well as she pursues uh, the goal of being premier of Alberta. Uh, two others have defected and are now supporting Pierre Poilievre, who is considered to be the front runner and who uh, b- between the two of you are yours. There's a lot of mudslinging. You know, I think the tone of the campaign was certainly set by uh, by the Poliev campaign. Um, when I launched my campaign, when Jean Charest launched his campaign, uh, Pierre Polyev launched uh, attack ads. The same day we were simply announcing our intention to run, they, they ran attack ad videos against us. And um, that shouldn't be the way it is in a, in a leadership. Uh, I feel that sometimes Pierre spends more time attacking fellow conservatives than he does focusing on why he believes he'd be better than Justin Trudeau. And, you know, I I think there's a lot of other candidates that feel the same way, that uh, rather than attacking each other, um, you know, we should really define how we do things differently in Ottawa. Um, Yeah, he says he has over 300,000 people signed up. Uh, A a lot of people believe he has it sewn up, and um, he's tapped into something, a populist thing, a lot of a generalized, you know, anger. Uh, You know, what about that? So... If if Pierre was as confident as he says he is, I don't think you'd see him using the scorched earth approach that he is to my candidacy or to Jean Charest's candidacy. He certainly doesn't leave the impression of a confident um, front runner. But yes, you know he is extre- he is appealing to um, elements um, in the country where he's trying to sell memberships to um, that I believe would be an electoral albatross for the party. You know, you look at the membership drive he did in the cryptocurrency community. He made that his signature economic policy to combat inflation, and has turned out to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, when he made his announcement, um, Bitcoin has gone down 60, 60%. Um, and so I think it's important for leaders aspiring to be the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada to to not take positions that will hobble the party's ability to be competitive in 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 the next election. And so, you know, I, I, de- I do see concerns. Another example would be when he wanted to uh, ban vaccines for, for even polio and, and measles, um, where there's been more of a history of, of the use of vaccines. It's one thing to think the government went too far in their mandates, but when you get into trying to combat children from having vaccines for for, for polio and measles, it, it gets to, to, to the verge of being ludicrous. What do you do now? You have all these members signed up. I guess you have to make sure they vote. Yeah, it's about getting uh, everyone we signed up uh, out to vote, uh, collecting um, collecting everyone that uh, signed up to, to make sure that the ballots are submitted or, or we can submit them for them to, to Ottawa. And it's about building the party that I believe we have the capacity to do, that it's it doesn't matter who you love, where you're born, the color of your skin, what God you worship. We're going to build a big tent conservative party that can serve all Canadians and fight for all Canadians. 
federal conservative leadership candidate Patrick Brown in conversation with Libby on Monday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Trudeau Liberals have announced they are following through on banning both the import and manufacturing of single-use plastics, like plastic bags, takeout containers, and plastic cutlery by year's end. So when the time comes and you get takeout from restaurants, expect to receive alternatives to the plastic products that come along with your food. So how will this impact the restaurant industry? And how far will the ban go to reduce plastic waste? Libby asked these questions of a panel of stakeholders. Annette Sinovietz is Director of Policy with Toronto Solid Waste Management Services. Court Desotel is with the Neighborhood Group of Companies, which operates four restaurants in Guelph and one in Kitchener. And Olivier Bourbeau is Vice President of Quebec and Federal Affairs at Restaurants Canada. It was not a surprise because we've been in contact with the federal government on that matter for uh, a while now. Uh, but that being said, um, COVID cut us off guard, cut everyone off guard. Uh, what I mean by that is that uh, what we would have, uh, what, what we what we would like to see from the federal government is for an extended transition time, just to make sure that the supply of the alternative products will be available because currently. The, the 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 containers and the material that the items that we that that we are using right now are not even available in the amount that we need. So imagine the alternative products. Oh, you're saying even the regular stuff. That is correct. I I can give you an example in in, in a second. Is I I have a chain of restaurants. Uh, they they are a member. They have over seventy. Uh, restaurants in both Ontario and Quebec. And when they order, for instance, 10,000 containers, it's not even a question of putting their logo on. They, the supplier says, I only have half of it. So they buy half of it. So in terms of alternative products, we, we, we want to be, we want to be part of the transition. Definitely sustainability is a, is a good thing, but it's going to be important for the government to work closely with the, the suppliers to make sure that it's going to be available at an affordable price as well. Well, yeah, I think uh, those environmentally friendlier things are expensive. Uh, Cortez Hotel, you have a number of restaurants and, and some of them do a, a big proportion of their business in takeout. Yeah, it's something that we've, you know, our newest restaurant we opened, that was the whole idea, was to, to focus more on a, a grab-and-go. And our company... We've, you know, pretty much removed single-use plastics and started with straws, removed plastic straws from our company eight years ago. And, but pointing on to what Olivier just spoke about, we use biodegradable takeout containers. And over the pandemic, because of the mass amount of, of uh, takeout that we've seen, especially in our other restaurants are mainly dine-in, but obviously people can only buy takeout. You see a huge cost increase in those reusable containers. We've seen anywhere from a thirty to fifty percent cost increase in those containers right now. So it's been a it's been a lot of adjustments uh, to menu pricing, which we're already seeing through inflation. Uh, but now uh, with these these containers going up in price and just being more popular, and we're going to see that surge jump up even more now uh, with everybody having to move over to. Um, uh, to these style of containers instead of single use. Let's bring in Annette. 
So uh, with these biodegradable containers, I guess you just throw them out. Um, generally speaking, most containers for takeout, you just throw them out because a lot of them are black too. You can't recycle anything black, correct? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Um, containers can vary in the products that are produced from. So when we're hearing about a product that may be made out of a fiber product and maybe if it's soiled, then that would go into the green bin. If it's black, uh, correct, uh, it cannot be recycled in Toronto's program and it would have to go into the garbage. Then we also see um, other types of containers that might be clear or maybe made of foam. Those can be rinsed and go in the blue bin. So definitely we try to educate our residents and make sure that they get all the information on how to properly dispose of uh, the different types of items that they might be getting with their takeout. The Toronto um, Solid Waste Department has recently launched a reducing waste uh, program to help businesses transition uh, to reducing single-use and takeaway items. So we'd love for you to join the program and learn more about it by visiting uh, our website at toronto.ca slash reduce dash reuse. Annette Sinaviets, Director of Policy with Toronto Solid Waste Management Services, Court Des Hotel with the Neighborhood Group of Companies and Olivier Bourbeau, Vice President of Quebec and Federal Affairs at Restaurants Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Rudy in Toronto phoned about eliminating waste for takeout food in restaurants. What I heard about restaurants uh, asking people that are taking out uh, takeout whether they're going to take it home or eat it on the way, that's a very good idea. So they don't have to give out plastic cutlery to people that are, that are uh, going home with the food. Tom in Brampton called about issues around alternatives for plastic takeout containers. Replacing plastic with paper won't work because there's not enough trees in the world. It takes decades to grow a tree, and uh, you can cut a tree down with one of these automatic machines. It takes 30 seconds less to cut down a tree. Then once you turn that into paper, you got to grow a new tree. Joan in Niagara also called about single-use plastics. When are the manufacturers going to be held responsible for this? You ever bought... uh, a packet of batteries? You need a can opener to open it. <laughs> Daryl in Toronto phoned during our segment on driver's license suspensions. I'm 67. About uh, 10, 11 years ago, I uh, was having trouble, you know, stressed out, trouble sleeping and that. I went to a sleep clinic. Uh, they did a test and determined that I had apnea. And then the doctor ended up suspending, they suspended my license. Just before the pandemic, I ended up going to a sleep clinic and another test, and I was informed that there was this thing called a daytime wakeful maintenance test. The doctor wrote a note saying that uh, my apnea wasn't affecting my ability to stay awake. So I went back and they unsuspended my license, but because it had been more than four years 
completely suspended. Now I have to take my tests again. It always bothered me that, you know, anybody can have a few rough nights, you know, they can't pay their mortgage, they can't sleep well. It doesn't mean that you don't know that I'm too tired to drive. Dale in Toronto called in on this topic as well. I was about uh, 42, about 15 years ago when I was diagnosed with macular degeneration, which leads to, you know, eye loss, vision loss. And I started going to get uh, laser surgery at this doctor's office. And I, I really didn't like the way they did things there. They were very rude and brusque. And it was just, I went there a few times. And then one time they were rude to me and I, I let them know how I felt about it. And a week later, my license was gone. They pulled it. I, I had a definite feeling it was just out of spite that they did that. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Vern in Whitby, who also called during our segment on doctors suspending driver's licenses. Probably something that people are not aware of. If you've had and this has been the experience with someone that I was looking after. When they went back to reinstate their license, they had to go through a whole rigmarole, plus they had to do a road test, and the cost was over $600 to do this 20-minute road test. It was ridiculous. I don't know if anybody else has come across that, but that was the experience that my friend had. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.